Hello, everyone. I'm here with Michael again and uh, really excited about what we might uncover today. We are going to talk about the general idea of suffering. And uh, what got us thinking about this was something that came up on the Randos channel where Job and Luke and, and who's the, the? Jeff. Jeff. Jeff, we're reading A Grief Observed together and also just some other comments that had come up. So I'm going to open it up to you, Michael. What, what were you thinking about when you were watching that video? Well, I, I found it very interesting to um, that Job connected something in in terms of connecting with the undeniable reality of Lewis's suffering in reading. They were just going through, I think, the very first chapter of the book, so they weren't even very far into the book. But he, I mean, he launches in right away with just how you know how dark his life is in, in this moment in time, and and I I found. Well, for I found it interesting because Job, obviously, I don't know if you're familiar with his story, but he's obviously, um, he's still kind of like on this border between atheism and, and Christianity. He goes to church. Um, he's obviously really involved in Paul's community. He, he, he finds something there that is life-giving, right? That he, he's attracted to. But at the same time, he, he finds um, it very difficult to embrace some sort of uh, idea of God, right? And I, I can really sympathize with that myself. I mean, I've, um, very kind of have an analytical and skeptical mind, but, um, but he, he made the uh, note of the fact that w when he was encountering the idea of this suffering, that there's something in it that connected him with the idea of God, which I found very interesting because for myself yeah, as well, palpable at the moment that he said that, yes, I, I, I completely understood what he meant at the moment that he said that. And I could feel it down in the deepest part of my gut. The, it, the truth of what he said. Yeah, exactly. It, there's something about pain that is um, completely undeniable. Whether it's whether it's your pain or or you're encountering somebody else's, there's something about it that immediately goes to the top of your hierarchy of what is salient, important, um, and and something about it that you you don't fake. It's it's always whenever you see it, you know that's real. Like it's like there's so much information in it that you're like that is I know that's real pain. Like you can just immediately identify with it um and you can even know like when a kid's not really in pain and they're faking it you know like mm -hmm. you can there's there's a such a stark difference uh between the two and um but i found it very interesting that um that 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 would connect him with god um and like that 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 in the brief moments where he's encountering this pain somehow he can ex the idea that god exists can be is somehow acceptable when in other points in time, it, it, he's struggling with it. Um, and I feel like I've kind of had similar ex experiences in my own life and, and trying to make sense of why that would be the case. Um, one, and one of the things I've kind of come to in my own kind of idea of, of God is that there's something about God that is, is, is um, in some sense, I, I think of him as the, the being in, in the universe or whatever that, that he feels the, these pains at a much deeper level than we do. There's like something in him that uh, is very close to us in our pain. And, and this is all through the Bible too. Like, you know, God is, you know, close to the lowly and the, the, the oppressed and the, the downtrodden, that there's something that he's there with them. 
Um, and like, it's like, he, I don't know. I, I feel like there's almost like a, like a recording, something of their pain is being inscribed in him and even in maybe even a deeper way than it is in, um, the person who's going through it in such a way. And, and I still can't connect the dots for exactly how this connects us to God, but there's, I think, you know, one of the interesting things is, you know, your ability to empathize with other people's pain is in some level, um, you know, relational to how much pain you've gone through yourself. You know, you can't really be moved and, and look at, you know, at other people's pain unless you've experienced it yourself. And then there's some sense in which the more and more pain that we have encountered in our lives, the more we have an opportunity to also put ourselves in God's shoes, I think in a certain perspective, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And there's bells and whistles going off all <laughs> So a few things that came up for me um, when you talked about the amount of pain that God feels, I, I, remind, I remember that verse, I believe it's in Isaiah, where he says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Um, it might be even in the same passage where he talks about how a mother comforts her child. And then he says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And <clears throat> I think years ago when I was a new believer and I would read that verse, I would think of myself as a, a little baby or a little child held securely in his hand and similar to an engraving he had a picture of me engraved on his hands uh -huh. but as the years went by i began to see it more like you know the nails in his hands are something that i put there yeah and um that at the same time that he says I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And he has that picture of his love and care and comfort is at the same moment that he's experiencing the pain that I caused him. And um, so it, it gets to be a bigger and bigger and bigger picture. And it, one, the other thing that you said that brought up for me is a quote that uh, when my mother was dying, in the very last minutes that she was dying, I was watching, I was sitting in the hospital room with her. And in this, kind of in this space, I could feel in a very palpable way that I was in a space that was somewhere between heaven and earth, or between this reality and the other life. I could feel that I was somewhere in between. And there was this... Um, Christian TV show on or something and some guy was giving his testimony and in the testimony he quoted something from John Stott that went up on the screen they showed the quote on the screen and that was like engraved in my mind and that quote was in this universe of pain and suffering I could not believe in a God who had not experienced it for himself yeah yeah that 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 for me I would say, yeah, that that's one of the primary reasons I think I'm a Christian. Um, obviously, I, would, I, I would, so I've, I was raised in a Christian background, but um, you know, kind of fell away from it. Um, but for me, you know, I, first of all, like you know, I, it's it's I don't find a logical reason in being a materialist. But for a long time. I feel like I was kind of in a place where I was like, uh, you know, like, well, how do I know what is real and what's, 
but for me that that is what's so distinctive about Christianity is that God chooses voluntarily to to have the suffering of of being to fall most severely on himself and in and I conceptualize it like when you're mentioning the cross, I think the cross is is the great you know passion play where that gets demonstrated to us, but I don't think it's a one-off in terms of, I think it's, you know, Jesus says, I'm, I'm here on a mission to represent the father to you. So it's, he's, he's writing, you know, uh, with his actions, he's kind of demonstrating what I think God is doing in some larger sense all the time. Like, it's like, I feel like it's an ongoing act of God's self-sacrifice that even makes potentially creation possible itself. You, know, you were talking with uh, Sherry the other day and she was saying something about what is it, how is it that God makes room for other things besides himself? You know, if he's, you know, this, we, he's all encompassing and all knowing and omniscient, all these things. What is, what is it? So I feel like there's something even in the act of creation itself. And that I don't think we potentially recognize or think about um, what, what price God is paying, you know, I think, especially in our kind of newer, um, you know, we have this, you know, rationalistic scientific point of view and we live in a digital society with all this technology. So we can imagine that God creates the world kind of like we create a new, you know, instance of a, of a a video game universe, right? Like we just type a command and bum, 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 you know, copy, paste new universe, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I really don't think, that's that that represents i think the complexity in the universe we have here is is in some sense a measure of god's investment in where um of himself into into the what what is before us as a as kind of a sign of his fidelity and faithfulness to what he's created like like i've thought about this a lot where you wouldn't if let's let's imagine there was a god that had like you know a trillion universes that he's like just simulating all these different realities and like, Oh, let's see what happens. Let's see what pops up here. You know, Oh, something interesting happened over in this one. I'll watch that for a minute. I don't think we'd find that that would be, there's be something fundamentally evil about that God. Like he was just like, this was just an entertainment mechanism for him, right? He's not really invested in this. It doesn't cost him anything. The pain and suffering going on in this universe over here is only interesting in as much as it like, it like is some novelty compared to all the other trillion universes. So I think there's, there's something that, at least in my conception of of who God is, that demands almost that that sacrifice, that self sacrifice, which I think is most uh, is is portrayed in a very realistic and complete way uh, in the cross, obviously, in, in the story of Jesus. Well, so let me throw something in there. This is an idea I was tossing around today, and it, it's just a it's just a picture, but. Um, I was watching this um, lecture today on quantum field theory, mm-hmm. trying to wrap my head around this. And, and he did a very excellent job, Dr. Tom. He did a very excellent job of describing or going through step-by-step step how uh, physicists have come to quantum field theory. And, he explained it in a way that I could grasp at least a little bit of what he was talking about, that rather than the universe being made up of particles, 
you know, I had been thinking quantum field theory meant the universe was made up of quarks and quanta and, <clears throat> but he says in actuality, there are these, there are just fields everywhere. Like uh, electromagnetic field is, is moving around and then it mm -hmm. comes into contact with uh, some other force field. I can't, I can't even remember. There's like four fields that are out there yep. all interacting with each other. And when one of them starts waving, it bumps up into against another field and that gets that one moving. And then it bumps up to another field and it gets that one moving. And that, that everything is made of these waves that in, uh, in some places tangle up into tight little wads and those are the particles. Hmm. The particles are just tightly wound up wave that comes in at different places and that all of us are made of these particles, but we all exist in these fields. Interesting. All, yeah, I, I'll send you the link. <laughs> Because this is the current state of physics. That's what they're saying. There are just these interacting quantum fields all throughout the universe that are made up of these waves that are bumping up against each other and interacting. But he obviously didn't say anything about consciousness. Yeah. And so I thought, well, okay, let me say, I'll just give them their idea and say, okay, that's true. They have this field theory, and that's true. That's what, how the universe is made up. It's all these fields that are interacting with each other. But we also know that there is consciousness, and there is pain, mm -hmm. and there, yeah. is, um, there is sorrow, and there is love, and there are all these things that aren't explainable by, by particle field theory. What if there is a consciousness field that is also completely permeating the entire universe, and it is one of the ways that that consciousness field could be influencing all these other fields kind of ties together with what Jordan Peterson talks about when he says, whatever, whatever you place your focus on your goal, that's what brings into your line of vision, mm -hmm. the, the actions that, well, the actions that you take kind of bring new things into your field of vision that, give you the information that you need for your next step and your next step. And so in some sense, you're sort of creating your future step-by-step step based on what's in your field of vision. So, so if I'm just this wave and I'm a bundle of little particles, but these things are coming into my field of vision and I'm acting on them based upon my consciousness, what consciousness is showing me is the next step. Right. In some way, these consciousness waves could be interacting with all the other waves and causing the, causing the future to happen in some way. Well, okay, so if, this, if that is the way that it's working, um, you know, there's that verse in Colossians, I think it might be 115, that um, in him all things hold together. Mm -hmm. So... I don't think there's any mistakes in scriptures like that, that Jesus is somehow the fabric that holds the whole fabric is probably the wrong word, but yeah. he holds the universe together. He holds everything together. All of our breath is in him. So there may be some way in which this consciousness, his consciousness is holding things together and is mm -hmm. allowing, but still allowing for, 
choice and agency through this idea of things that come into our field of vision and you know the goals that we set and all of that but that would also involve a significant amount of pain because according to this quantum field theory guy everything is connected so we are all connected together somehow all of humanity is all connected together in these fields Mm -hmm. and if there is a consciousness field then we're all connected together with that consciousness field so all the pain that we feel that conscious is affecting that consciousness field now i know this sounds probably sounds a little weird but i i um i've been i've had some significant back and hip problems for a number of years because of an injury I had when I was younger. And the way I maintain my health and energy and all that is by going to a a specialist. He has designed a a method of what he calls dynamic reposturing. And his method involves kind of a super yoga almost that he does on the human body that you can't do for yourself that keeps all the ligaments and muscles and everything stretched out so that your your body's structure can align itself because when it when everything is stretched out in the way that it is supposed to be your back will automatically align Mm. itself and stay there and it's only when stress is too much in one place that it pulls things out of kilter and Mm -hmm. and and the things I've learned from him over the last 15 years working with him about how the human body is put together is absolutely mind blowing because yeah. we're, we're made of levers and pulleys and <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's weird to look at the biomechanical stuff. Yeah. So, so your big toe is affected by whatever happens in your shoulder. Mm-hmm. And, and it's exactly like what the scripture talks about when it talks about we are the body of Christ and Christ is the head. And when we respond to, um, when we respond to his word properly, then all the parts of the body work together and all the parts of the body have a function. And that may not just be a picture of the body of Christ. That may be a picture of the universe as well. Well, yeah, I think, I think, it is larger. I think there is something you could think of as the church specially plays within that, but I think you're right. I think that it is larger, you know, cause I, you know, when, when you were talking, it made me think of, um, you know, when Jesus says, when you, when you did this to the least of these, I, I tell you truly, you did it to me. Mm-hmm. I think that there's something real in that, that it's not like a, Oh, symbolically you did it for me. I think it's like, you know, when we alleviate the suffering of others, it's like, it's like really we've, we've done it for God as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked what you said when you said as, as a sign of his fidelity. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Cause I, I think, you know, the, um, for myself, you know, like what I, what I always struggle with, you know, I would not by any stretch call myself a mature Christian. I feel like I'm kind of in this, still in this place of, um, of like a lot of questioning, a lot of, you know, along with that questioning comes a lot of doubting as well. But I think where the, the struggle point where the testing always comes is in relation to, um, to 
God's goodness and, and his ability or his power to make good on that, his goodness, the promise of his goodness. You know, maybe, and I find it's very easy in terms of the temptations of my mind to, to try that I conceive things that if I follow the thread of thought, its intention is to either undermine his goodness or his ability or his power to, to make, you know, to make good on that goodness. That, that, that holding those two together is very important. Um, to, to believe that God is, is good and that he can also fully make good on the promise of what his goodness is declared to us. And I think there's some sense I feel like in which um, we all kind of, there's something in, inside all of us that we kind of know something, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this a lot, you know, that, you know, we all have this kind of sense of what is good and right. We often twist it when we look at ourselves and, you know, other people, but there's something we all know, like it's deeply inscribed. And so for me, when I'm, when I think of that fidelity, I think, you know, I think of Romans, you know, when Paul says, you know, that, that all men, you know, like in some sense, there's something in the air of the nature itself that if we look at it and it, it tells us the story, even if we didn't, weren't exposed to the gospel in some way like that, it, it, we know of this, this goodness in that. Um, um, but that specifically the Christian story, I think it takes us to another level with, with the cross. Um, but what's funny for me too, is I, you know, a lot of my intimations of this stuff didn't even come through. Um, it was really like through just weird life experiences and experiencing pain and, and oftentimes reading different books, some of which actually a bunch of them weren't even Christian books, but just seeing, you know, pain being played out in certain stories. Um, and somehow being caught up in, in some sort of read, interpretation of that pain is something good, which was completely kind of took me by surprise. It wasn't what I was expecting or looking for. You know, I found myself overwhelmed with emotion, which at first glance feels negative. And then when I dug underneath it and decided to pay attention to it, I saw that it wasn't, it was actually something really good, which was, it was, it was a big shock to me. You know, it was kind of like, huh, um, what's, what's going on here, you know? And I felt, it felt like such a weird, unique experience to myself that I didn't place much in it. I thought, well, this is some weird quirk of my own, like, you know, consciousness, but, but the more I dig, dug into it, the more I, you know, could see it everywhere, you know? And so I had, you know, I'd either have to come to the conclusion that I'm going crazy in some respect or that this, this thread really is present in all these different locations, you know, and that, I don't know, um, by making it salient, by focusing on it and asking questions of it, like I, I was able to now come in contact with it in a lot more places, but it's, but it was always there before, you know? Mm -hmm. So are you kind of talking about that idea that, um, something can happen in our lives that we think is, is, really bad or difficult or tragic and it's very difficult to walk through it but then something will arise that shows us that there was a purpose in what happened and once mm -hmm. we see that purpose it kind of rewrites the whole past and makes a different kind of a story out of it definitely yeah i mean uh, that's certainly a big part of it like um 
it's a weird thing though because with the pain like you know i've i've I, I wouldn't say that i've had that painful of a life you know some of the situations that drove me down this path were personal experiences that were fairly you know they weren't they weren't things that i would voluntarily relive but um but yeah there was it the funny thing is at the time it was like going through them i had a very clear sense of that it was for good even in the sense even while i was going through something that was really painful like like i i had this sense that this is good and uh, there was actually no you know rational reasonable reason for me to have to hold on to that but it just if that thought kept reappearing and i had along with it this enormous amount of gratitude that that uh, something outside myself was kind of arresting my attention to see. And it was like, it was like, it was, it was preventing me from, from interpreting those events in such a way that I would become, um, you know, resentful, which is, that's always the choice, right? It's like you can be easily become so hurt and, and resentful and, and make decisions about, I'm never going to be vulnerable to anything again. You know, like I'm never going to allow myself to be hurt this way. You know, I was such a fool to be put in this position. So I'm, I'm going to respond by, in some sense, you know, uh, you know, not only um, just kind of having this this resentfulness to the nature of being itself. Um, that you know, Jordan talks about that a lot. That um, that's kind of what that take into its logical conclusion. You know, you end up with, you know, the Columbine shooters or the um, the you know the the spirit of Cain that murders his brother. Mm-hmm. out of resentment so but I, it's even if you don't go that far you can get to a place where you can't experience joy anymore and when when you when you shut yourself off from pain you simultaneously shut yourself off from joy and that makes life so hollow mm-hmm. and um i remember when my when my husband left me, my first husband left me, um, the, the pain was intensified because I had put too much of my life, too much of the meaning of my life was wrapped up in him. Mm-hmm. I had become a Christian after, after we got married and after our child was born and all of that, but I hadn't shifted the, the worldview that meant that my husband was my life. Yeah. He was my everything. I mean, he was my best friend. He was, in a lot of ways, he was my God. Even though I, I called myself a Christian, my husband was the most important person in my life. And so when he left me, and, and the, the way that he left was um, so shocking because I thought, for 20 years, I thought we had been really happily married and just blissfully happily married. And, and all of a sudden, I find out that in his mind, it had been hell the entire 20 years. And so it yeah. really caused me to have to recalibrate, like, well, who am I? Am I a person that creates hell for other people? Or, or was that his personal hell? Or, you know, what, what really was the reality there? And, um, and it, it became a tremendous temptation to buffer myself, to, to build more and more walls. But I remember praying. I, I, some, at the time, I was doing a study 
on the names of God. And one of the lessons in the study was, I think it's Proverbs, I forget these addresses, maybe Proverbs 1810, something like that. Okay. He is a strong tower. I run into him and I am safe. He is my refuge and a strong tower. I run into him and I am safe. And so I could have this picture of this, this big, strong bulwark of a tower that would allow him to be my walls and, and allow Jesus to surround me with his walls of safety and know that I could be completely vulnerable. I could allow myself to be completely vulnerable to people knowing that mm-hmm. I could trust Jesus to take care of the results of that because he was going to be my strength and my tower. And um, that was, that was like a huge breakthrough for me to be able to start letting the layers down and be real again. Yeah. um, It's not an instantaneous fix by any means, but it's a tremendous, tremendously beautiful truth to hold on to. There's another passage in Isaiah 26. I think it starts with verse one where it talks about, um, we have a strong city and salvation is its walls and ramparts. And then there's another psalm, I think, that talks about, look, look at the city, walk around, its, walk around its walls, walk around its, count its towers. And so, so I have this picture in my head of, I am safe and secure in the middle of his city, and I'm surrounded by towers and defenses and everything, but they're, they're his defenses, they're not mine. Yeah. So, have you, um, while you were talking, it made me think of if you encountered the work of Brene Brown and her, her stuff on shame? A uh, little bit, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I just found I it interesting. I preached a couple messages about her, and she, I think she came and spoke at our church once about something. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I found her really interesting too. Um, She's a very winsome way of. of giving information yeah because well she she talks about how you know like if you if you don't when you were saying like when you when you shut off the negative you also shut off the positive and that's kind of what she goes into is like you kind of have to deal with these these deep dark parts of yourself and and shame is obviously one of those things that people really don't want to talk about but it often underlies a lot of the pain that people have because you know I think it was like, there's a great quote from uh, Adam Smith that said, um, people not only want to be loved, but they also want to be lovely. Mm-hmm. And so there's this sense in which we, we don't just, we want, we want to not just to be loved, but we want to be objects worthy of love. And and so when we have that denied to us in some way, which is what shame is, is kind of like a, a sense of, yeah, that you don't deserve to be loved that it's really kind of cuts you off at the knees there. Um, whereas like she, she points out, you know, guilt's like a healthy emotion because it helps you, helps you think about what you did and what you could do differently. Whereas shame is kind of like, no, it's not that you did something bad that you are something, you know, mm-hmm. bad, which is, it's a completely different, you know, shift. And that's, it's, it's funny. That's often how um, I feel like, you know, in my own, 
personal life in terms of thoughts like, you know, it's often easy to um, underline a lot of negative thoughts. I feel like is, is, is just, it's, it's that extra step of taking things too far, which I think um, tries to kind of shut things down. It gets you, you know, what John Verbeke talks about this with his reciprocal narrowing where it's like your, your sense of possibility just comes, comes all together. Like it's like your view of the world and everything becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and I think, um, that when he talks about love being a reciprocal opening up, opening up. Yeah. 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 I think that, that found that very interesting. Cause he, um, Paul was talking a while back about how like, you know, he talks about how the, 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 the insane person has a circle that's very small. Like he can't get away from himself. He's so, he's so bound up in his identity of himself. Whereas God has this much, the same person has a large circle, but, but, but he, he made, Paul made the comment on that. Well, then God must have this very, very large circle that, that encompasses everything. Yes. The whole universe. <laughs> yeah. And I, it was funny. I was, um, I just encountered this great poem by a guy. I can't remember his name. Um, and I, I heard it in like a corporate sales meeting, which was the funniest place to hear this, this poem, but it was like talking about like, he said something like uh, the poem is like um, he drew a circle and kept me out. And, but, but love and I had the wit to win. We drew a larger circle and took him back in. Or so, yeah. I, I, I'm sure I, I, I skewered it, but it was, I mean, it really struck me. I and like just grabbed my attention of like, you know, that, that what God, whatever God is doing, it's always this kind of inclusive move that is self-sacrificial and kind of pulls us back into things. Did you see the, the, uh, the interview on rebel wisdom with Daniel Schmachtenberger on, uh, mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. He's talking about, it was one that Paul had highlighted. So I, I made sure to take time to watch it. He's talking about sense making and how, because of the polarization of the world right now, and because there's so much, hmm, what all the places that we might go to find truth have sort of, the well has been poisoned. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to discern what's true and what's not true. And um, one of the things he was talking about is when when you're discussing ideas, if this idea of drawing a circle and keeping people out is like the common path right. now, right? But um, if you have two people with two seemingly opposite ideas, the only reason that they seem opposite is that your circle isn't big enough mm. or your perspective isn't big enough. So if you can, so when you're talking to somebody and they're saying something that seems completely opposed to what you believe, if you can relax and open yourself up a little bit and really think about what they're saying, and let's say you try to strongman it, let's say you try to find a way to support their idea in, through your own thinking. Yeah. That's one way of handling it. But another way is to just imagine that up here somehow there is a higher perspective that's looking down that both of these ideas fit into that higher perspective. And he gave a few good examples, but um, 
it's kind of the Hegelian idea of the thesis and the antithesis and then the synthesis. But I think it's a little bit bigger idea than that, that a lot of times we can't, like you were talking about God is good. Mm -hmm. God is big enough and strong enough to make good on his promise to be good. But sometimes what it requires is for me to look at the situation and just simply say, this does not look good, but God is good. So somewhere in this picture, I will find the goodness of God. And if I keep looking hard enough, I will find it. It may not be in the part of the picture where I'm looking. It may be some other part, but, but that true, if, if I start from the fundamental truth that God is good, mm-hmm. then my perspective is going to somehow see the truth of how God is good. Yeah. Maybe not, maybe not even in this life. <laughs> you know, maybe my, Maybe my perspective is going to have to get farther out, but um. yeah, it makes me think of um, C.S. Lewis saying, like you know, uh, basically that that worship is worship of God is like mental health externalized. That there is there's something in that um, that act, and specifically for me, you know, the the gratitude aspect of worship. Um, that that does that does something that does re- help provide that frame. Um, and again, for me, what's funny for me is that it, it did begin in a time in my life where it was everything was kind of going sideways, and it was certainly not not my own effort that kind of. I wouldn't even say I was had a, had in mind a sense of gratitude toward God specifically, but it was a sense of you know maybe like I had a a sense of the universe or whatever. I don't, I, something I knew, I knew something was looking out for me in some sense and I was grateful for it. And just even, even that it wasn't articulated in a specific place, I, it still had this tremendous protective power for, for allowing me not to go down that a different path, which I could, I could almost clearly see the path I would go down. You know, it's almost like I was, I could see the path I could go down and I could see myself being pushed, not even of my own volition down a different path. Wow. Yeah. So, so you could see more than one future opening up in front of you. Yeah. And it, it was like, it was, it was a sense. And here's the funny thing is I, I, I sensed in the moment that it was a gift. And then I also sensed that if I wanted to continue to receive it as a gift, I'd have to like continue in that mode of gratitude. Because like, if I, because if I, if I came to the conclusion, oh look, I'm such a wonderful person, and <laughs> look how how mature I am to handle this situation, and such a, a grown up, <laughs> and you know, I, I could tell that that would that was that was the end of it right there, you know, like it was. And there's always, I, I mean, everybody has that temptation, and and I'm I'm certainly not immune to it. I just, I was in such a moment of of such complete chaos and and. And, and knowing that I wasn't in control, that I knew it wasn't of my own making, you know? So that was kind of like a, I didn't really, I caught, I could have maybe, you know, cobbled together some theory of my, you know, my own superpower, but like I knew it wasn't myself. I love when we get glimpses like that, that we can carry forward into our future and remember. So for me, one of the big ones was, um, I think it 
2006, maybe we had gone on a trip, very big family trip. We hadn't done, we hadn't gone to Europe before and we stayed in London for three days and then we were going to fly to Venice. And on the day we were supposed to fly to Venice, our flight wasn't until six o'clock in the evening from Heathrow. So my husband said, well, I want to show you Blenheim Palace in Oxford. So, so we took the rental car and we drove to Oxford and we saw Blenheim Palace and he wanted to have lunch there. And I kept saying, well, we should leave. Oh, we got plenty of time. It's only 1.30. So we left at two o'clock. It's a 25 mile drive from Blenheim Palace to Heathrow Airport on the M25, which is this big circular highway that goes around the outside of London. <laughs> and there's something about the M25. It's, it's a parking lot, but it's one of those parking lots where every time there's an exit, everybody goes over into the exit lane to try to get a few more feet. And then when they get just before the exit, they'll pull back out into the freeway and, and then try to get a few more feet further along. So that slows everything way down because everybody's trying to get over into the exit lane, thinking that that's going to speed things up. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, we're moving along at a snail's pace, one hour, two hours, three hours. We can see the window closing. We're not going to make it to the airport, you know. And there's, there's this, uh, this angst to just, just get one more mile. Just get one. We're going to, you know, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. And, and we get to the airport at like 15 to 6. And they'd already closed the gate and they wouldn't let us on the plane. So huge disappointment. We're going to have to rebook a flight for the next morning. We had to stay overnight in a hotel at the airport there. And, you know, fortunately, we didn't bite each other's heads off or anything. But, I mean, there was obviously a lot of frustration over this. Well, when we got to Venice the next morning and the water taxi came to pick us up at the airport, we had, of course, we had called him the night before and said, don't come. We're not going to be there. So he knew not not to pick us up. But he said, he said, I waited at the airport until midnight last night. And we said, well, we let you, we told you not to pick us up. And he said, oh, I know. He said, I had other people to pick up. And he said that flight that came from Heathrow, it flew right into the, we had the worst storm last night we've ever had in Venice. And that flight had to circle the airport for three hours above the storm before it could land. And then he showed us the debris everywhere. There were gigantic billboards that had been knocked down. It was just like wow. a hurricane had come through town. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and we missed all of that because we were late for our plane, right? So I have never again, seriously, anytime something gets in our way like that, we're like, God's got something better in mind. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> So it, it changed the whole way that everybody in our family looks at anything. We just say, remember Venice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, you know, it's like between, it's the weird, because I do believe that our agency makes a difference, but but probably we think it matters more than it does. Um, and And God's ability to even work with our mistakes and the things that we, we did wrong. Cause I think we're, we're always aware of how far short we're falling. And mm-hmm. so there's a sense in which we're always looking for shortcuts to get back to where we, th- we think we're supposed to be. Yeah. 
and that's obviously, you know, probably not the way to go. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't there a song? Get back to where I, (laughs) back to where I used to be, get back to where I should belong or something like that. Bum, 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 bum. I hear. I remember the riff. <laughs> I just can't remember. <laughs> well, it's been a delight talking to you, Michael. Let's um, same here. Let's do this again. Definitely. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Signing off. Hey, maybe I'll try to read a grief observed, and and then next time we can talk about. You know, we were, we were saying at the very beginning that. Um, C.S. Lewis must have been in a very different place when he wrote The Problem of Pain, mm-hmm. which is really pretty academic. Still very helpful, but very academic. And then when he wrote A Grief Observed, where it was much closer to his heart because of the loss of his wife. So that would be an interesting thing to look at. Yeah, definitely. That sounds like fun. Okay, signing off. Bye-bye. All right.